Support for this podcast comes from Workable, the hiring platform used by more than 20,000 companies to make the right hire faster. With automated and AI-powered tools and workflows, Workable helps teams find and attract more candidates and work together to identify and hire the best. Advertise jobs to 200 plus job boards and source candidates with just one click. Evaluate applicants fairly and consistently. Schedule interviews and make offers and more. To learn more about Workable, visit workable.com slash get a demo. That's workable.com slash get a demo. There's been more of scientific discovery more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 213 of the Recruiting Future podcast. Building a workplace that's inclusive for neurodivergent people is something every employer should be doing. However, there's still widespread ignorance about neurodiversity and still relatively little discussion about it in our industry. My guest this week is Theo Smith, Recruitment Manager at the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence. Theo draws from both personal experience and some in-depth research as he shares some excellent insights into how and why companies should attract, include and retain a more neurodivergent workforce. Hi Theo and welcome back to the podcast. Hi Matt. Thanks for inviting me back on. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you back on the show. For those people who may not have heard when you were on before or may not know you, could you just introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Yeah, my name's Theo Smith and I work for a company called NICE, an organisation called NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. Um, we look after the uh, research, um, the evidence-based research for the health sector, um, specifically within the NHS, but also globally across uh, the health sector. Uh, and I had a recruitment there, uh, but I've also got some side interests. Um, I'm neurodivergent, uh, and I guess that's something uh, we can talk about uh, in a moment, but that's that's why I'm back here today. Absolutely. So I think this is a topic that certainly I'm hearing more and more about and really uh, trying to educate myself, educate myself in. And I thought it'd be great to have you have you sort of talk a bit more about it. So first, and I suppose obvious question, what is neurodiversity? What does it mean to be neurodivergent? The reality with uh, being neurodivergent uh, is that it's uh, more complex than perhaps we once thought. So neurodiversity, I guess to give the um, professor's example of what, what neurodiversity is, it's a concept where um, the neurological differences uh, are recognised um, in human variation. I think over some time through neuroscientists, we've been able to understand that uh, being different, thinking and acting differently, uh, whereby you may have autism or where you may have ADHD or ADD or dyspraxia or dyslexia, these are not illnesses. Uh, these are not to be thought of as negative. They are actually strengths and they are natural uh, parts of human evolution. 
But what's happened over time is our built environments, our working environments, our educational systems and structures have actually disabled these individuals and made it very difficult for them because the assessment processes for organisations are designed by those people who are neurotypical, those who perhaps don't fit what we would say is this 15, 20%. Now, there's lots of stats on this. Um, they say uh, approximately 10% of the UK population are dyslexic, around 5% have ADHD, around 3% have autism. Uh, but the reality is, is, and this was the big one for me, Matt, that I only realised a year and a half ago, is that you can have more than one so that you can actually be uh, ADHD, but you can also be autistic or that you can be dyslexic or you can also have ADHD. So just to put this into context, when I was 21, I went to university as a mature student. I'd failed all my exams. I'd been, I'd left school with barely anything um, to take with me uh, and I'd really struggled uh, but I'd managed to get to university in the end as a mature student and the um, thing that really uh, fascinated me is I found out I was dyslexic and, and that was a big eye-opener for me but I thought that solved the, the the challenges I'd faced in my life whereas in actual fact uh, I find now at the age of 39 um, probably at 38, the uh, other impacting factors that are going on. And actually, um, they, uh, I uh, potentially suffer from ADD or ADHD. I'm still going on that journey to to fully understand that. Um, so neurodiversity uh, is about thinking differently and it accounts around 15 to 20%, but we, dr we think drastically different. Uh, and it's neuroscience that's really been able to help us understand that. But, but that's kind of, you know, if we look at um, what a professor would say or what a neuroscientist would say, um, that's how they would describe it. I think for me, there's a bigger issue, a bigger thing that we should think about within the workplace, within the education system. And I was at Wreckfest uh, a couple of months ago, and I was there with the uh, founder of a, of a startup company called Tappin. Now, they provide careers content for students and they have over a thousand micro influencers across universities but they have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of students who tap in to listen to the careers content on youtube what have you and i was sat there with mills and i said mills wouldn't it be amazing if we could find out from students now what they know about neurodiversity and he's like yeah we can do that now and i was like what he was like, yeah, Theo, we can we can literally find that out. No, I'll ask my thousand micro-influencers across all the leading universities, um, you know, uh, several questions. What would you like to ask them? So I asked them three things. Do you know what neurodiversity is? And they started to come back immediately. Um, and once we got all the results um, from these micro-influencers, 17% of them knew the term neurodiversity. We then asked them, would you identify yourself as someone who is neurodiverse? 16% of them came back and said yes. So that's only 1% of students. And we're talking about the most engaged, top-performing students, those ones who are uh, willing to be an influencer within this space, connected to tapping, the tapping community. Um, that's only 1% who didn't identify as being neurodiverse, who knew what it was. Now, these are the future leaders of tomorrow. And they don't know what neurodiversity is. 
Now, what my wife turned around and said is, Theo, but that doesn't matter, surely, because they will know what ADHD is or they will know what dyslexia is or dyscalculia. And my answer to her was, well, possibly they will know, but they will have the same perception of these as other people, that they are a disorder. And this is the big problem that we have. And this is what we have to resolve. Because if the future leaders tomorrow, only 1% of them, and that 1% may not identify being, with, being neurodiverse, but actually they may have a brother or sister or cousin or friend who's neurodiverse. So even though they're not neurodiverse themselves, they're aware of it because they're connected to people. Well, what about the, um, you know, what about the 80 plus percent of other people, you know, who don't even know what the term is? So for me, it's really important that people just don't think of the negative terms like ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's identified as a disorder because that's what we've created here. Um, you know, we, we've looked at these. Uh, if we look at, you know, kind of the medical paradigm, it's that these are um, these have been disorders. We look on the news and we see hospitals in Ireland where. Uh, people with autism have 24-7 care uh, and whether or not they should even have this care uh, is questionable. You know, this 24-7 care, whether we should have different options for these individuals. So when we start to break neurodiversity down, it's really fascinating, really interesting what it means. And that actually it, uh, it, it cross-pollinates across um, all of these areas that there are real links. So for me, um, this data, the fact that our future leaders don't really know what neurodiversity is, is an issue. And this is why we need to talk about it today. Um, but actually, I've been doing some research uh, with Horsefly. They've been working with me to look across the data they have globally. And this is online data, careers focused. And they've pulled lots of data for me that I'm um, collating to write blogs and, uh, and to put into other content and books and, and other information I'll be putting out. Uh, and just some early insight for you, because this is, is not, nobody's seen this, and nobody's seen that um, data from tapping yet. Um, but that data tells us that nobody online with careers profiles is really presenting themselves as being neurodivergent or putting neurodiversity within their profiles or putting ADHD, dyslexia. The only people who are, are those people who work within the field. So that data basically told us that if you're a neuroscientist or if you're a nurse or somebody within an educational profession, a teacher, a SEN coordinator, somebody who would be working within this field or specialised within the field, they may possibly put this information on their profiles, on LinkedIn or whatever else it may be. But, but people are not. Normal people who are looking for careers. And why? Because I think this is the same challenge we face around uh, people who uh, are coming out, um, who are uh, effectively want to express their sexuality or somebody who wants to express their ethnicity, their religion. People are cautious. And why are people cautious? Because organisations, unfortunately, um, sometimes will not have the structure in place to ensure that they recruit fairly. And 
that is a big concern and what, what we need to really think about now in the work that we do at bringing this to light. There, there are some fascinating statistics there. And I suppose to just dig a little bit deeper into that, um, and, and this might be quite difficult to answer at a, a sort of a, a generalisation level, but what, what kind of issues are neurodiverse people facing in the workplace today? So the challenge we have as a community uh, as a neurodivergent community is that we're not always fully aware of our own um, challenges within these organizations we're not always able to uh, break them down ourselves so the fact that people are now talking out about this we've got advocates like agony Orti, we've got individuals who are really uh, willing to be outspoken Uh, and support other people in the community means that people are building confidence around themselves and actually going, oh, that makes so much sense for me. So the types of things organizations um, will see is that somebody may be affected by light or sound. doesn't necessarily mean they're neurodivergent, um, but there is a good chance. So somebody who's autistic perhaps might be highly affected by the built environment uh, within the organization, by the swirls on the carpets, by the lighting being very bright, by the noise, the intense noise. Open plan offices have been shown to have a negative impact on those who are neurodivergent. Not all of them, because some people thrive off it, some people don't. But if you can imagine, we can be hypersensitive um, to some of these things. So they can really affect us negatively. So as an example, Somebody may not like, I use the word desk drop. You go and desk drop somebody in an organization. I like to desk drop people because I like face-to-face contact. I like to talk to people. I like to engage with them. Part of my ADD and dyslexia means that, you know, I'm probably just better at, at getting up on my feet and directly having a conversation with somebody. However, even I need to consider that some people, perhaps who are neurodivergent, uh, let's give an example of being autistic, me going and desk dropping them, actually can have a huge negative impact but not just like somebody else who may get frustrated that i've interrupted their work they may be able to hyper focus which means they can go to levels that we couldn't even imagine uh, in terms of focusing on, on specific detail this is why we have you know wonderful scientists this is why we have people like alan jordan we um, you, you know we have other incredible people who study phds because they're able to hyperfocus. The, the challenge is, though, you go and stop that person in their tracks, you go and interrupt them, it may take them 30 minutes to an hour to get back in, in that mode of focus. Right? So that can really negatively impact an individual just because I've walked up and dash dropped them. Now, what I might be able to do is just take a post-it note and drop that post-it note next to them and say, Theo here would love to talk when you're ready. Uh, just as an example, it's me just, I, I use, um, it's a Covey phrase, um, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. I think it's from biblical texts, but, you know, this type of methodology that you, you seek first to understand the individual and their needs. But, but the danger here is that that individual won't just go, go away. They may implode or explode. So that may mean that they need to go and find a quiet space because, You've disrupted them in such a way you've exploded their mind. You've uh, you've really interrupted um, the work that they're doing, and that can have a real negative impact. So if we keep 
interrupting an individual, they're going to implode, explode. We're then going to feel that negatively as an individual, as an organization, as a team. We're going to start to question the individual. A manager might start to question the individual because the other members of the team will go, that person's insane. So the the, the way the uh, analogy I use, Matt, that people tend to like is, uh, you know, we all want Superman. Right? We all want Superwoman. We all want superhuman uh, abilities. We want Superman because he can shoot lasers through steel. He can fly. He can do incredible things. He can save people's lives. Who doesn't want Superman? But we bring Superman into our environment. We bring Superman into our assessment process. And then what do we do? We say, oh, by the way, we're just going to make you work with this kryptonite. We're going to put this kryptonite all through the recruitment process, an assessment process. We're going to put kryptonite all around your work environment. But do we really need this kryptonite? You know, John is our top performer and he's fine working with kryptonite. He says, hey, everyone's got to work with this kryptonite because I've had to work with it for years. So, you know, we bow down to John or whoever it may be. Um, Our leaders, our managers bow down because they just don't want the hassle. But what we're missing out here is on individuals who have superhuman abilities. And we have to believe this because, you know, Bill Gates, ADHD, potentially. um, uh, Now, you know, he leads Microsoft. They have some of the best uh, programs uh, in autism, uh, SAP. They've been running programs to hire people who are autistic because they've seen they've got crazy skills that are adding real value. These big organizations, um, you know, Alan Turing uh, paved the way of the modern computer and artificial intelligence. You know, it is it's very much believed that he was autistic. I mean, go and watch the, the film and you can, you can see the actor does a, a brilliant um, uh, example of somebody who uh, faces challenges in the workplace and challenges with their colleagues. You can see that individuals just don't understand it. And I think what we need to do is we need to step back and go, why is this individual imploding or exploding? Could it actually be something that we are doing as an individual, as an organization? And I actually think about that is good practice anyway. You know, if we're talking about candidate experience, we're talking about employee experience, uh, we're talking around focusing on the individual to get the best out of them. So when we look at solving the problem for those people who are facing these challenges, linking back to employee experience, we are improving the environment for everybody. Because if they can work with somebody who can solve problems that nobody else can solve, and this is where I come back to um, do you want a culture that is defined by an, an individual because they're the high performer or defined by a team or defined by the organization? Or is it defined by the actual culture of the organization? What you really want to achieve? Sometimes that means having teams that don't naturally look like they fit. You know, we look at baseball, moneyball, you know, the, the, the film where they, they got the best group of of uh, players based on how they fitted within to that specific role. And I think that's what we need to start doing. Why is this individual having problems with the environment? Why is light affecting them? Why is sound affecting them? Why do they explode? Why do they need to go and find a quiet space? Are we able to provide them the quiet space? 
because what we're going to get back, Matt, is something incredible. Um, but if, we, if we're not willing to fully understand this individual's needs, then we're just we're going to make it really difficult for them. Picking up on what you said about Microsoft and SAP, in your research, have you have you have you found sort of many positive stories from employers um, in terms of what they're doing? And if so, could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, so I mean, Microsoft and SAP are good examples of global organisations who recognise the uh, potential uh, of people who are autistic who could work within uh, specific technology roles, whether it's as developers, um, you know, or coders or whatever it may be. Uh, now, they've been running these programs for years and the information and data that's coming out is that they've been highly successful. Now, the thing is, is when you've got an organization like Microsoft or SAP, and this is where it may scare other organizations and people and where we need to make the big shift, they've got the size the scope to deal with this and if we look at some uh, of the innovators who are perhaps neurodivergent you know we come back to albert einstein you know it, it's deemed that he was potentially who knows dyslexic adhd autistic we don't know but it, certainly that he fits into the kind of alan jordan mold bill gates mold um in terms of do, just doing something crazily insane um in terms of creating something that you know, changes the world um, and, and did it in a very alternative way. You know, if we match that to people in neurodivergent today, we can see there are real similarities. Um, so they, they've got the benefit of being led by somebody who's neurodivergent and being technology driven where we can see people who are neurodivergent historically have made uh, and been very successful. So I, I would say let's put them to one side. They could say, let's pick Australia. We're going to pick an office where we don't put anyone else other than people who are autistic and we're going to get them performing brilliantly well. And all that energy is going to be put to make sure they've got um, wonderful employee experience. Right. And we're not going to put anyone else in there to disrupt that. Uh, where I'm seeing now other organizations make headway and, and do some really interesting work is in smaller organizations. So, you know, you may have an um, auto trader as an example in the UK. Uh, who are really shaking things up and doing doing incredible stuff in Manchester, um, in the UK. Uh, and, you know, you think auto trade, you think cars, um, but actually, no, you know, they're an online uh, organization. They don't deal with any cars themselves. Uh, they have a lot of developers. They have a lot of, um, you know, uh, technical people, um, digital uh, uh, people. Um, so the things that they've been doing in their smaller community is looking at how they can improve the environment for everybody. So sometimes it's something simple, like if every if you have a town hall meeting, you know, where the CEO, MD, maybe, um, you know, talking to the whole uh, office uh, and you could have 100, 200, 300 people all in a single space. Now, lots of people clapping, applauding can actually be quite intrusive and quite intense for somebody who is autistic as an example and for other people actually so introducing something like raising your hands in the air to celebrate um, rather than clapping uh, or screaming or shouting it doesn't mean that everybody has to follow that but if you can reduce that noise by 50 percent that can have a positive impact on somebody you otherwise wouldn't want to be in that environment and we can put that across uh, meetings we can say, 
when we have a meeting, can we ensure that the meeting, that the room is fit for purpose, that the room isn't too small? Because again, somebody who's neurodivergent can be put under huge stress and anxiety by being in a room um, that is noisy, that is overcrowded. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's when we think around um, people who perhaps have migraines as well, you know, some of these people get visual aura. Uh, the, the, we're not just talking about somebody dislikes being in that environment. And that's what we need to understand. We're talking about people who are actually hugely impacted um, by these environments. So it's these types of pieces of work that I want to bring out, that I want to showcase, that I want to see more of, because these things are happening. But you go and research this on online, Matt, and you won't find enough of it. What, what will keep coming up is Microsoft and SAP. What won't come up is these small organizations, whether it's Auto Trader, or whether it's Nationwide, or whether it's organizations just trying to make a difference um, in whatever small way they can. Uh, I think this is what we need to start doing. We need to start um, getting these organizations to talk about what we're doing. BBC is another great example where they've done some work within the, the digital team, within the uh, the IT team, they've created content and they've taken it upon themselves to uh, put out uh, information, guidance, content to show what it is to be neurodivergent, what it is to be autistic. And they've utilized that content within the organization, within the BBC, but actually they've also presented that information externally so you can go and find that content where they've made videos of what it's like to be somebody who's autistic in a meeting what it's like to be somebody who's autistic who has to get in a lift go up that lift walk out of that lift and go and to talk to their manager and then that starts to to open it up for people so that they, they, i want to hear more of this uh, more of these good news stories um, around what organizations are doing um, but there's there's other support out there, so I don't want I don't want organisations to fear. I don't want individuals to fear taking the first step, because it's uh, it's it, it can be big and it can be complex, uh, like anything. Uh, you know, if we if we're looking at diversity generally, it can be scary, but actually there are simple steps that we can take, and there are some good examples that are starting to come out. And hopefully, after people listen to this, they'll be contacting you, man. They'll be contacting myself saying. We've got some great stories that we want to share. And after all, it was only a year and a half ago that I understood what the term uh, neurodiversity was. And it was down to uh, it was down to the recruitment events company uh, and the RL100 where I was invited to go and hear uh, some people talk on the subject, specifically Ed Thompson at Optimize. Um, and Optimize provide online learning for organizations who want to really take the next big step and they want to re-educate the organization, they can use online learning uh, tools to be able to educate uh, both the employees, the managers, and to really uh, make that shift. Because often it is that, Matt. It, it's, it's being able to embrace neurodiversity for what it is um, and then show the rest of your employees that, that you buy into it and that you want to make a difference. And okay, you may be in the early stages, but you're willing to, to try and see what you can do. Uh, and, you know, this is, even though at NICE we provide the evidence-based research on if you are autistic or you're ADHD and you go to your doctor 
and you seek medical assistance, because sometimes you do, sometimes you need medical diagnosis of these things to get the support um, within the education system, within the health system, and dependent on the complexity uh, of your uh, your diagnosis, um, then ultimately, uh, you know, even though NICE provides this guidance, even we have to uh, continually look at ourselves and work with our employees to understand that we're doing the right thing. And it's evolving all the time because you have different types of people joining you. Um, so I would say, you know, no organisation has completely fixed this. It's about, uh, you know, continually working with it uh, as, an, as an idea, as a concept. Um, and I believe there are, there are amazing, mad, crazy skills that people can benefit from if they're willing to take that step. Final question, and you've touched on this a lot already, but perhaps as um, a summary, what would your advice be to employers in order for them to attract and retain neurodivergent people? I guess to keep it very simple, the first thing I would do is to allow your employees to have the conversation. Because the reality is, Matt, you have people who are neurodivergent in your organization. Even though, uh, and these are the scary stats, even though a lot of people who are neurodivergent, uh, unfortunately, are in prisons, they may um, have some care because there are other complex needs that can come out of being neurodivergent, um, uh, or they they may become entrepreneurs. Um, the, the, the scary stats are that they did a study in Chelmsford where 53% of prisoners were diagnosed as having dyslexia. Texas prisoners done similar um, studies and they've come out with similar amounts, 50%. Sweden and Norway have done similar studies. So we can say that if you're working class and you're neurodivergent, there's a good chance you'll end up in prison. Um, 30 to 50% of entrepreneurs, different stats depend on where you look, are deemed to uh, be dyslexic or possibly 50% neurodivergent. So there's clear stats to show if you're uh, working class, you could end up in prison, good chance if you're neurodivergent, or if you come from a good family, you may well become an entrepreneur. Um, so what I think organisations need to do is they need to take a big leap and realise that if they can start to um, respect those people within their organisations who are neurodivergent, give them the platform to talk and to speak about the challenges and to share it with other employees, that is already going to be groundbreaking within the organisation. It's already going to push the boundaries because those managers, those employees who sit next to them, go, why is that person making funny noises? Why are they tapping? Why do they explode when I dash drop them? Why do they get so agitated in meetings? If we can start to lift the lid on some of this stuff, that's half the problem. Because then what we can do is we can attract more of these people because we're not then going through court cases because we've not treated these people properly. Or we're not allowing 80 plus plus percent of people who are autistic and not in current full-time employment. All the statistics are absolutely disgraceful. They're horrendous. We shouldn't be there, but they're simple um, uh, or they're uh, global statistics that are saying the same things. So it's not just the UK, you know, Sweden, Norway, the US, um, that we really need to shift the dial on this. Go into your organisation, let them know you want to start having this conversation and allow your employees to step up and talk about it through blogs, 
through uh, informal meetings, lunch and learns, and that's when you'll really start to get your head around uh, the complexity of the issue, how people are affected within your environment, and then you can think around the simple changes you can start to make because you will understand your own environment. Theo, thank you very much for talking to me. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. My thanks to Theo Smith. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or via your podcasting app of choice. The show also has its own dedicated app, which you can find by searching for Recruiting Future in your app store. If you're a Spotify or Pandora user, you can also find the show there. You can find all the past episodes at www.rfpodcast.com. On that site, you can subscribe to the mailing list and find out more about working with me. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.